Thanks for joining in. My guest today is Rick Olson. Rick, thanks for taking time to chat with me today. Oh, it's great to be here, Neil. So yeah. a little bit of background. I had uh, Dave Racer, your cousin, on That's right. a couple weeks back, and uh, we talked about healthcare policy by and large, along with policy uh, in politics in more general terms. And he said, hey, you should talk to, to Rick. And obviously, I think I have an interest in healthcare policy, healthcare delivery, and your background and expertise is in the area of elder care, That's right. uh, which is an area that, you know what, I know very little about, and I think that most of the people listening probably could use some education in that. Yeah. Um, so just a little background on yourself and where you're at now, where you grew up, and how you ended up in that field. <laughs> well, I, uh, I had a, two grandfathers who were Christian businessmen, and my dad is a pastor. So I graduated from Bethel, uh, really not sure at all what I was going to do, but knew I wanted to combine business and some type of ministry. So I w roamed in the wilderness for about seven years, which included some time with the Internal Revenue Service. <laughs> you may have heard of those folks. <laughs> Very friendly, huh? But when I got a call out of nowhere from Swedish Covenant Hospital asking me to uh, be an internal auditor, and I interviewed for the job. I would have been a lousy internal auditor, but before I could even get there, the controller called me and said, our budget manager quit. Would you be budget manager of the hospital? And uh, what does a budget manager do? You learn all the businesses of a hospital. So it was perfect for me, and it was part of the Covenant Church. Uh -huh. So there's the ministry side. So where is Swedish Covenant located? Chicago, Illinois. Chicago, Illinois. Yeah. And they, what does their book of business look like? They have a hospital, they have... Well, as part of the Board of Benevolence of the Evangelical Covenant Church, in those days, that meant two hospitals, one in Turlock, California, the Chicago-based hospital, and then a loose network of uh, senior living retirement communities around the country. Then also uh, some uh, foster home adopted type agencies, mm -hmm. et cetera. So Covenant was very active with different types of ministry and a real leader in that. And my first day of work when I walked in, you know, you have this other duties as a sign slot in your, res <laughs> in your uh, job description. Well, the controller walked in and said, uh, Rick, by the way, we have these loose network of retirement communities around the country. We do the accounting and the finance work for those at year end and some of them through the year with the bookkeeping. Uh, you're in charge of that today. Okay. So I had the budget manager work for the hospital, plus the loose network of retirement communities on my first day of work. So I was learning everything I could about elder care and hospital from day one. And when, when was this? This was actually in 1979, 1978. And when did, uh, you know, when did elder care start? Was, was it there in 1850 or was it there at the founding of the country? Well, it was, but it was different forms. Like for instance, my uh, great aunt and an uncle had a group home in Michigan. So it's an older house okay. where you took care of elders. Uh, the model of skilled nursing has been with us for probably the late 1800s, you know, skilled nursing facilities, but it has a stereotype of that old white building, mm -hmm. you know, old facility where people go. And uh, over the years, it's evolved into assisted living Dementia care and memory support have been huge now in the last couple of decades as we've had more dementia. You have to realize back in the 1800s, uh, at the time of the founders, average life expectancy was 35. You didn't live long enough. At the time of Social Security, it was 61. 
If you were black, it was 48 mm. in time of Social Security. So it's those ranges. Now today, it's it just went down this last mm -hmm. year, but it had gotten up to 78, uh, now 76, with one of the fastest growing age demographics being over 100. In fact, I ran actuarial tables quite a few years ago, did a study on our residents, and the actuaries ran the tables out to 120. I said, that's crazy, but I happened to be doing a site visit uh, through the accreditation group that I, I did a lot of work with, and I was doing a site visit in Pennsylvania, and uh, I mentioned to the CEO that I said, I think those crazy 120-year tables. He said, Rick, I've got a resident down the hall who's 118, would you like to meet her? At that time, she was the oldest living person in the world. But I got to meet her, and she was clear of mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so we've had this phenomenon, and one of the groups uh, on the delivery system that came now is all these rental communities, and then you have continuing care retirement communities, which offer all the levels of care, if you will. So those never existed <laughs> until around 1950. Uh, we were one of the first with Covenant Palms in Miami of continuing care retirement communities. So, so is this system unique to America? Um, CCRCR. Continuing care retirement okay. communities are unique to our but country. But what does elder care look like in India or China or well, Europe? Uh, for example, we had the Japanese come and visit us. And A very elderly population. Yeah. yeah. And they take care of their own. Right. They're very focused on home care. Um, England is more focused on small group home type setting, sort of okay. what we were back in the 1900s. Uh, the Chinese came, I remember they came and visited with me and uh, wanted to build a continuing care retirement community in their province, but they have nothing like that. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's sort of all over the map uh, in terms of delivery services for the elderly. And what led to I mean, as a fraction of the total elderly population, have the as the fraction that lives in these communities that can be described mm -hmm. as elder care communities grown, stayed the same over time in America? Well, in, in, in America, what happened was on the skilled nursing side, I'll just talk about current information. About 20 years ago, we would have projected out that skilled nursing facilities would have 3 million people in them. Okay. <laughs> they have a million and a half today, not 3 million. Now what's happened is that assisted living communities have grown up, have been built, dementia, memory care, and the acuity levels have gotten much higher at what used to be lower levels of care. Mm -hmm. So you try to shift people from skilled nursing to uh, a lesser level of care, dollar-driven systems. Mm -hmm. I don't for a minute would, would tell you that we're patient-driven or resident-driven. Right in our overall thinking, we're dollar-driven. And that's one of the issues we have. Sure. <laughs> is that the dollars drive things. But the acuity levels, we've had seen assisted living have much higher acuity in terms of the person served. We've also seen acuity levels, uh, a real emphasis on home care and people staying in their homes longer, uh, virtual visits, mm -hmm. uh, more and more in-home visits. And so it's it's changing quite a bit, you know. Yeah, I mean, I you know, bumping up against the system on the provider side of it, it's it's always been interesting. I mean, I remember in my intern year at Mayo, you would get folks who were living independently, 
and then something would go wrong, yeah. pneumonia, fracture, whatever it is that brings you into contact with the medical system. And then unfortunately, you know, we couldn't send them back home. So now they're stuck, sucked into the elder care system essentially against their own will because they couldn't get up and toilet themselves. They couldn't yeah. get up and right. make a sandwich and get to where they needed to go and that they physically could not. Right, right. And the best case scenario would be, well, hey, we're gonna send you to a skilled nursing facility. They will help you do rehab. You'll get up on your feet again and then, you know, we can see, we'll run you through occupational medicine, make sure you can brush your teeth and comb your hair and change your right. clothes and that you're right. safe to transfer right. up and down stairs and then right. we'll send you back home. Right. But I, it always struck me as such an incredibly cruel thing that, that now unfortunately you've interfaced with the medical system and we literally can't let you go back home which would I would be very upset about I'd be like look I'm gonna go home and die I'd rather die with <laughs> dignity on my own than go into right. an institution right. against my will to have that taken away from me yeah um, I mean that seems to be one of the way that people enter the system the other would be kind of voluntarily the family says look there's there's no way the dementia is too advanced we don't have the capabilities right. of giving this you know, giving our mom or dad what they need. They need help. Right. Um, so it can be injury. It can be this kind of chronic disease that progresses to the point where you can no longer do it. Um, and then you mentioned all these acuity settings. In general, I mean, folks are sick, much sicker now, unfortunately, because our healthcare system has quite a few flaws, but the greatest of which is the, you know, the focus on treating illness, not maintaining health. And so we don't intervene with diet, nutrition, sleep, exercise in right. 50s and 60s so that when you're 85, you can squat down and pick up your 45-year-old grandchild, 45-pound right. grandchild, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, we just say, Here, here's some more drugs. Let's treat you as a set of numbers. And, uh, you know, let's tick some quote-unquote quality indicators and then just get you out of the office and yeah. back with more pills. And I think that's been one of the joys for me is that within our senior living communities, and I've also been part of uh, alliances, et cetera, that have been focused on preventive side of things. Mm -hmm. Heavy emphasis on the dimensions of wellness rather than just focusing on let's manage ADLs. Yeah. You know, activities of daily living where, yeah, bathing, eating, dressing, all those things are reactionary kinds of things. That's right. But if you can focus on the front end on wellness distinctives, and we've done that in mm -hmm. our communities and we've seen people come alive. I mean, even things like engaging people with our community, many of the senior living uh, communities are the most segregated in the world. They're age segregated. Mm -hmm. And you take away that element of kids and you basically condemn people to death. A lonely, terrible. Yeah, death. the number one issue uh, amongst the elders and, and actually it's amongst college students as well, <laughs> is loneliness. Yeah. It's huge, yeah. and it results in people checking out early. COVID was devastating. Co COVID, the, the, it the just, way- It just demolished the senior population. It, it was cruel, and there are, no one will pay the price, unfortunately, for that. I mean, many of my patients, I, because I do skin cancer and reconstructive surgery, oh, are wow. elderly. Yeah. And so during COVID, if someone has a large tumor on their face, uh, that's essential care, it has to go away. Yeah. So what, some of these senior facilities were doing was they would send someone in for the surgery. We would do the surgery, uh, send them back home, and they would segregate them in solitary confinement where they had fewer hours out of their day than someone who committed a triple homicide and was locked away for life. Yeah. And they would be stuck in their room with 
no support, no ability to interact with their friends, no ability to have a visitor, nothing. And they would be kept there in quarantine, tested multiple times yeah. uh, until some arbitrary, non-evidence-based number of days had passed. And then they would be released. The process would start over again. And what do you do when you ask this patient to come? So you're condemning them to two weeks of solitary confinement, and then you need to see them to make sure that the flap is healed or the graft is healed. It's a normal post-op visit, right? It's a five-minute visit. I didn't realize how bad this was until we had a lady come back and, you know, do I really need to come in? And I was like, you know, do you have, do you have a cell phone? Can you send me some pictures? She's like, I really don't. I was like, I really should look at this. Yeah. And she's like, that's fine. I'll come in. And then she told me, she's like, I get, you know, it's two more weeks of solitary for me. And I was just, I was heartbroken. I mean, I, I said, if, I, if I'd have known that, I would, I would have, we would have figured something else out. I had no idea. Yeah. And yeah. she even said that uh, she made the mistake one day of setting one foot outside the front door to grab a bag of groceries from someone who d was delivering it. Hmm. And they counted that as leaving the facility, and therefore there was two weeks of solitary confinement. You see, we've gotten into this regulatory mindset. Instead of a servant mindset, mm -hmm. a friend of mine in his early 90s, in a, now this is in a senior living, independent living community, was confined to his room for 18 months. 18 months where the meals are brought to the door. You can't even, you know, you gotta open the door, you can't even see someone, it's like a prison. It's worse. Yeah, it's worse. Now he happened to be a professional trumpet player and uh, he'd go out on his porch and play the trumpet. He's a musician, he'd compose, he's a writer, mm -hmm. he'd write. But there are many people who aren't that, in their 90s, mm -hmm. aren't that type of person. Yeah, And you find even people with a strong faith and a strong commitment basically saying they just want to die. Right. Uh, you know, there's no purpose left. And that's what happened to our elderly population, other segments of the population as well. But, you know, my emphasis today is on, on the elderly. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's a travesty because one of the things that we have is that we have this in incredible talent of knowledge and wisdom uh, contained within that population. And so ways to unlock that and to get it connected. So I've done all kinds of intergenerational stuff over the years, partnerships with the Y or mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, one of our communities that we had something called PEP, People Energized by Purpose. The residents ran it, not us. If we were, I didn't, I didn't want our team involved with it. We'd mess it up. I mean, we <laughs> uh, we support it, but they formed what they are, what they call their own pep divisions, and they had a pep board, and it basically meant that, like, since for example, they had painting, they had English as a second language for Spanish-speaking employees, mm -hmm. where they would actually help our employees learn English. I mean, they'd have a a band and an orchestra and a chorus and coin collections going into the schools and tutoring kids in the grade schools. And I couldn't, the life on that campus was just through the roof. I remember I did a uh, introductory coffees when I started there as CEO and I met with residents at small coffees just to get feedback from them. But I had one couple show up, they'd been married for 70 years, they were in the early 90s. And they looked at me and they said, well, we're really sorry, we're gonna have to leave early. We, well, they had something else to do. I mean, they're in their, <laughs> I mean, they're, you know, 70 years married, early 90s. Hey, we got a few minutes we can spend with you, but we got to get on with our day. Well, they're just energized. 
And you know, you know what that does physically. Yes, you know, yes. And, and I think that the, that the kids are such an important part. I mean, you know, we knew in May of 2020 the kids don't get COVID, they don't spread COVID, and if they get it, it's a cold at yeah, best. Yeah. Um, so what should you been doing? Well, flood senior care facilities with kids. Let the grandkids come in. If you have some question about the adults, send the grandkids in. Let them hang out with grandma yeah, and grandpa. Yeah. Let them help out. Let them spend that time together because there was never risk to either party. Um, my limited understanding of the data is that it's extremely strong for the benefits of intergenerational contact in both directions, which is why many cultures have these extended families where right. the grandparents are with you know, the mom and dad, with the grandkids. Right. And the grandkids benefit from someone that's got more wisdom than the parents, and the grandparents benefit from someone who gives them more reasons to live. Yeah, I... Uh, I I did some interim management of a company called It's Never Too Late. Uh, we also were involved in strategic planning for the startup of that company. But it's basically adaptive technology, and you can do all these things for elders. Mm -hmm. But in the early days of the pilot, the owner of uh, IN2L had an eight-year-old son. And he wanted to team his son up with the oldest resident he could find. This is in Colorado. And uh, they found a 108-year-old. So, but they weren't going to meet. They were going to communicate via this IN2L technology. So he would, he would do his thing. She would do voiceover back to him. You know, I would convert to text so he could see it. And I mean, it, it, so she didn't have to type anything, you know. And it was just an amazing kind of thing. This went on like for a year or two. And uh, it made the evening news. They did an evening clip on this. And they finally met, but uh, they asked her, they said, uh, what was it like meeting Kevin? And for him, it was unbelievable to meet this 108-year-old. Mm -hmm. And for her, she said, you know, for a while there, I was just sort of bored. I was wondering why I was here. But then I met Kevin, <laughs> and my whole life changed, you know. And then the bad news was that they met face-to-face, -face and then they never wanted to be apart, so then they right. didn't want to use the technology. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yes, technology is a poor standard. But it's a sort of an example of, thing. we created a company called Life Bio, and it was really a company to uh, just capture the stories of elders. But you could have a grandchild do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so many of us, you know, we live and say, I wonder what Grandpa really meant by that, and I wonder about this and I wonder about that we never captured it hmm. yet it's right there you know and it's just uh, we've got to do a better job of that we we've devalued mm -hmm. we have devalued the elderly population I'm, I'm talking in gross generalities but mm -hmm. that's the way I see it we've we've put them aside to a certain extent we've had a warehouse mentality right we've overregulated it after COVID the regulate regulatory environment stepped up even greater so, you know, when somebody says, ask me, well, should Medicare or Medicaid be paying uh, for rehab services on the Medicare or for people who don't have the resources on Medicaid, uh, I'm saying to myself, well, the government's gone so far, there's, there's no choice but to pay. But once, yeah. once they pay, then they, they control it. Then they control. They control it. So we've got this, you know, we've got this terrible paradigm in place of conflicted interests that really jeopardize the care for elders. So we mentioned that the, the, the payment part, right? Nothing in the world is free. Right. And so, quote unquote, well, I, I put in my time, I paid for Medicare and they should pay for my retirement. Okay, but understand that that comes with strings because now you're asking for something 
to be free, and then nothing's more expensive than things that are free. Right. So right. you give up, you know, autonomy over control. It's going to have a massive regulatory burden. Um, what, you know, what was the, and I, to me, the regulatory environment and the, and the, the financial side seem kind of intimately intertwined, right? If you got rid of Medicare paying for it, you'd have some regulations, probably because things went bad, and so you yeah. end up yeah. thinking you could solve that problem through regulations, but it wouldn't be as heavy of a hand. What was that environment like when you entered the business, you know, in the mid to late 70s, and how has that shift, that regulatory environment shifted over time? I, I think, yeah, well, you, on the skilled nursing side of it, uh, it's dramatically increased over time. Assisted living uh, around the country has been very, a uh, lot of different variations on regulations. In some states, it's not regulated. Okay. In Minnesota, over time, it's gotten heavily regulated to the point I say in Minnesota, who owns the keys? Hmm. I mean, you may have an owner-operator or a nonprofit entity that's running, supposedly the runner of these communities. But I basically say the government's running it mm -hmm. for all practical purposes. By dint of regulations. Yeah, by, by regulations, you know, check the checkbox mentality. Right. And when you get in, my, my concern is over the years, we've gotten more and more into this checkbox mentality. And, you know, even I, I was involved with Continuing Care Accreditation Commission, CARF CCAC, and what we sat down, we put our standards together for the, every area of operation. But the standards weren't attempted to, you know, I was very clear being part of that group that we couldn't have those standards be a club mm -hmm. to hit people over the head for fines and penalties. Mm -hmm. Those standards were there to have ways to make sure that people were being served well. So I, to have temperature ranges between this and this, mm -hmm. or food temperatures between such and such, that makes sense. But then when you start saying, well, if somebody touches a napkin, you better put a different napkin. Right. Now we've gone too far. Well, and show me know? the evidentiary base that leads to some adverse outcome, right? So yeah. it, it's, I remember my kids, you know, my oldest can read now, so she started to read all the warnings um, when you go to a pool. Yeah. And she's like, some of these are ridiculous. Like, yeah. who gets into the pool with festering sores all over? I was like, look, someone did, and that's why, and then there was a lawsuit, that and that's the why, thing. Yeah. that triggered the whole thing. That's why yeah. that ridiculous thing is on there, right? Yeah, right. Because 99.9% .9 of people with a festering wound would not get into a public right. pool, right? But because one person did, they think that they can regulate it out. And so was there a case of elder abuse? Was there a case of food poisoning? I'm sure there was. Sure. But the question is post-regulatory intervention. Has the rate of those issues gone down? Because fraudsters are always going to commit fraud, cheaters are always going to cheat, and bad people are always going to do bad things. And there, to my mind, is no evidence that regulation across industries right. reduces the incidence of those bad things. All it does is increase the cost of delivering whatever business service there is, and it penalizes good people who want to try to honestly do a good thing. And it's such a adverse, punitive environment that there's no constructive aspect to it right right a, a better way to approach it for example you know in the in the um, airline industry if there's a an issue then you bring it up and it's okay let's fix this issue let the first step is let's fix this issue because we think there's a safety problem here the first step isn't let's jump straight to a fine and someone goes to jail and someone loses their job yeah but in so many other industries I would assume Senior care is like this. Medicine certainly like this. It's there's no 
we're attempting to heal the problem because there was a problem. There is, you have to pay this fine, you have to pay this restitution, you need to have more checkboxes, which by the way will distract you from the delivery of care. So now your nurse is checking boxes all day instead of checking patients all day. And yeah. none of us are better off. Yeah, and I think that the thing about it is, is that if you set up a system that's really focused on root cause analysis, yeah. instead of saying, well, this happened, we got to react. Mm -hmm. We formed uh, an insurance company. Uh, we had about 28 pretty, pretty good-sized systems that were, we formed our own insurance company for the purpose of liability insurance. Mm -hmm. It's become such an issue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And so we literally put together a, a full-blown organization and we had different committees, but one of the committees of the insurance company was risk management, which I served on. We focused on falls and elopements. Mm -hmm. And you don't, you, know, you don't sit there and you penalize people, you sit there and say, what happened? Let's, right. let's get timely tracking of a fall. Right. Why did the fall occur? What are the steps we could take to create a more safe environment, an environment that's less conducive to falls? Mm -hmm. What kinds of things can we do with our flooring, <laughs> our traffic patterns, mm -hmm. the way we serve, the way people sleep at night, whatever it is. Right. That can, we brought down our falls dramatically. We had about 50,000 residents in this group around the country. And we brought down our falls experience dramatically we also then it, were able to reduce our premiums <laughs> dramatically because <laughs> right. we set the premiums for our, for our organizations because it's our own company and so we brought down our premiums every year there was a nice refund check on premiums but it was all focused on root cause analysis it's the same way with elopement you know you, you, elopement you can there are so many different ideas on how to handle elopement and some people say, let's just lock people away and lock down units. Right. Or let's just put warnings on their ankles and it'll sound off an alarm. And by the way, let's treat everybody as if they're all the same. Right, right. <laughs> when they're all individual people. And, and, you know, sometimes they come and mandate, well, you will have locks on the door. And then sometimes they will come and mandate and say, you will not have locks on the door. And you're going like, okay, what am I going to do? You know? Yeah, yeah. And a lot of it has come down to some basic, hey, here's ways we can manage this. We can't possibly screen every negative outcome. That, that's right. I, and that, I think that decision makers and politicians and regulators don't understand that. Yeah. We cannot drive these events to zero. Yeah. So I cannot drive surgical site infection to zero. It's impossible. But yeah. what we can do over a population of people is drive it downward like your falls, right? Yeah. There's no way we can have zero falls across a large enough sample size. It is literally impossible because someone will find some new way to, to fall, all right? There's bad right, luck. Right. People must accept that and understand that the attempt to get to zero for some of these things, uh, the juice isn't worth the squeeze and the cost from a regulatory burden and compliance standpoint is so far going to outweigh the, 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 the amount of money to save once you've gotten two or three standard deviations away, that next fall That's right. is going to be an insurmountable amount of money. And that has a knock-on effect for every single resident and every single care provider. That's right. And then, you, I mean, you take that a step further and you come down to the, the inability to get decent malpractice reform, mm -hmm. you know. And so literally when something goes wrong with someone, 
that's been the biggest change I've seen since I've been in the business is we didn't think about suing yeah. <laughs> people in when I started. I mean, I that word wasn't very often heard. Yeah. Now the first thing that happens when something goes wrong with somebody is let's let's sue. Right. And as a result, we've drawn our costs way up. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm I'm not I don't want to throw stones at the legal profession, but I'm not a big fan of a lot of what I see. Mm-hmm. And some of it is just line the pockets of that profession. It's purely self-serving. It's there, self-serving. There was a recent uh, ruling against a rollover uh, for pickup truck rolled over. Both people ended up died. The bizarre jury uh, award was $1.7 billion. And now there's there's no uh, accusation of malfeasance. This is just, you know, sometimes cars roll over, people die. There are, yeah. there are no two people that are worth $1.7 billion. It used to be actuarial tables ascribed yeah. a value to an eye, yeah. a value to a fracture, right. and then there's clearly uh, an economic loss if you, you know, someone dies in their 30s where there was some economic pain for their family that would last the rest of their expected life, and that we have tables to, right. to deal with these things. And so a reasonable settlement might have been 10 or $20 million, right? But $1.7 billion is just such a gonzo number. <laughs> and who pays for that? Well. You go buy a pickup truck, it's going to cost more. Yeah. Um, These lawyers are doing no one any good. And then the result is that all the companies, not, you know, unexpectedly, turtle. They're like, well, we're just going to make everything so that there's no possible way. We're going to put more nanny cams on you. We're going to take away your ability to have, you know, freedom and personal responsibility. And and that's not going to end up saving anyone's lives. And so... um, In fact, it may increase the incidents, the number of incidents. Yeah. It won't decrease the number. It will increase it. Well, so that's a good question, right? So yeah. each one of these regulatory burdens you put on the nurses at a, at a sniff, um, how much less attentive are they to the real needs of each patient because they're too busy filling out paperwork? And does that lead to an adverse outcome? Well, I, I think, you know, and I, I, I teach at Bethel Intro to Healthcare, so I've got pre-nurses in my, uh, and they're going to be terrific nurses, but my big concern for them is that they get to do nursing. <laughs> I'm and not sure they nurse very much of the day. And they get uh, buried with regulatory mm-hmm. compliance. And literally during COVID, one of the groups I work with, uh, their RN was on the phone three times a week with three different agencies here in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Three different ones. And it was like she had three different bosses. Right. And it's a thing I'm telling folks, particularly with surveyors in the regulatory environment, it's shifted from hey, that we're here to support and serve you, to we're in a command and control mode. Mm-hmm. And as they moved into command and control, they've demanded time out of the communities that should go to serve people. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's reporting. That's right. It's reporting every possible thing you can report. So there's an administrative burden, right? So you, yeah. now you have to hire how many more administrators, how much and that comes out of your bottom line, just to fill out, you know, TPS reports for the government. Yeah, I looked at it a agencies. few years ago. I don't, I don't remember my source, but I think it was over 50% mm-hmm. of our costs. I, I The number in my, running around my head was up to 70% of our costs is regulatory overhead. That's right. 
And it's a big percentage. I know it's not a small number. Yeah. I know it's a big number. Well, it, it's the predominant driver of growth across all domains of healthcare delivery, from hospitals to offices to yeah. you know skilled nursing facilities. Right. And there's a famous graph that shows the increase in administrative spending. You know, physicians barely keeping up, not actually not actually keeping up with inflation yeah. uh, in terms of their income. Right. And then it's all administrators, and then pharma, right? And yeah. that's the entire cost of it is the administrative regulatory burden and uh, pharmaceuticals. And so I look at it and I say, how can we get back to the main reason we had these? You know, if you go back to the 19th century, uh, most of the major reform movements came out of the church. It was people who were passionate about different causes, whatever it might be, but you, they, were, they were front line on every kind of social issue you can imagine. Mm -hmm. But somehow we've transferred that to another party, hmm. uh, in this case, the government, in my mind. And we've transferred that. Now we have church groups, et cetera, but they are in have to comply with the government to a large extent. And so how do we get that back? You know, I've, uh, I've gotten to know uh, Senator Abler, mm -hmm. and he's my senator. I plan to vote for him, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but I like Jim a lot. But as I've talked with him, I think a couple of years ago, he was in the mindset, I don't want to speak for him, but this is what I heard. More of the mindset that says, well, we just need to pay more. Mm. You know, let, let's pay more. That's such a broken mindset. When, since when has that worked? It we, hasn't worked. We pay worked. more every year for public schools and they get worse every single year. But we pay need, more for healthcare. We need to increase the, the rates, you know, and yeah, that no. was part of it. It wasn't the only solution for him, but it was part of it. But the last time I heard somebody ask him, he was in a forum where I had heard someone ask him, what do we have to do for aging services? And Jim said, he said, we need to start over. He That's said, a better we, answer. We've, we've burdened these communities with layer after layer of regulation. We need to go through it and strip it back yep. to what's absolutely essential. And then the next thing he said was what troubled me. He said, but That'll never get approved. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if you start with that mentality, right? Yeah. This is the, this is the well, we should never have omnibus bills, but you know what? I, I guess I don't have a choice. I need to vote for one. I mean, if yeah. we start with the mentality that we've already lost, then we for sure have already lost. But uh, I think we got to the point where at least we're talking about it. Yeah, right. <laughs> but we need good. to see movement. I mean, we yeah. need to see, uh, I think that the most acute thing that could be done would be a lightening of the regulatory burden. Yeah, I agree. Um, because that would give folks more capital to play with to say, we're going to add staff, we're going to add facilities, we're going to try to drop the cost. Any one of the things you could do if you had capital freed up from having to comply with a non-evidence-based regulatory burden. Yeah. But the last thing the government ever does is give back regulatory abilities. Yeah, it's power and control. Power and control. But yeah, they don't right. realize what the cost is. And people right. are very bad at seeing those indirect costs because they're harder to measure. But the one metric we could perhaps use is what was the cost to put someone into a skilled nursing facility as a fraction of per capita income in 1970, 1980, 1990, 2000, and now 2022. Yeah, yeah. And if that number is climbing as a fraction of per capita income or in adjusted for inflation. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's not only climbing. It's a hockey stick. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's way up. It's way up, okay. I can't give you the numbers, but I know it's, I know okay. it's way up. So we're paying dramatically more for at best the same, perhaps less. Yeah, that's right. Why? Yeah. And why do we tolerate it? Um, but so many people are ignorant of, of that. And, and, and I, 
I think it's just a microcosm. This particular industry, you could draw the same parallel to ag or mining or anything else where the government thinks that having a regulatory environment is good for really anybody. Well, they, they play the game, too, on the funding mechanisms, uh, you know, where you have your payer sources who don't necessarily pay true cost. And as a result of that, you get shifting. Because right, you get these massive distortions. Yeah, yeah. and you get shifting, and, and uh, it, it's a horrible way to run a system. Can you talk about how, uh, you say I put my mom, mom, I'm not going to put you in a nursing home, not yet. <laughs> if I put my mom in a nursing home tomorrow, how, how is that paid for? Who pays for it? When do they pay for it? Well, I mean, there's you know there's several different scenarios on that, but the the key pay players on the short-term side of things is Medicare, okay. which pays for so many days, like a hundred days. All right, so I break my hip. I'm in the hospital. I need skilled nursing. The twenty nursing days are, are pretty well covered. The okay. first twenty and the next eighty are there's copay. And does yeah. Medicare pay the cost? The actual real? They pay by there's different categories, just like DRGs. Yep. Same kind of thing, prospective payment, PPS, a prospective payment system that's got various categories. So you're assessed by those categories, and that's what Medicare pays by. But to yeah. be fair, does that actually cover, if I was the nursing home and I got that check, am I like, yeah, that's made me whole? Yeah, on the, on the, actually on the nursing home side, we've been able to uh, make margins on the Medicare. Okay. Because on the Medicaid, we're usually short. Now, Minnesota is a unique state, one of two in the country, that has something called equal pay. And that means that you can't go above, the private pay rate has to be the same rate as the Medicaid rate. Oh, interesting. In most states in the country, that would bankrupt most skilled nursing facilities. Minnesota learned how to deal with it and huh. pays a, a little better Medicaid rate. Okay. But, you know, years ago, I, I had a fight here in Minnesota because there one certain senator who still named nameless <laughs> wanted to equal pay the Medicare rate too. Uh, okay. And that was the point where we did make margin. And so sure. I basically, uh, we fought and got that excluded. I mean, it's a federal program, so how can a state dictate a federal program? Right. But equal pay is in Minnesota, but in most states, I'll give you an example from uh, Pennsylvania where I was working uh, three, four years ago. Uh, Pennsylvania had a rate of, uh, the, the notice came out from the state on Medicaid and says your daily costs we've calculated from the information you've provided to be, you need $250 a day to operate. That's what the state says. Okay. We've decided to pay you $200 a day. <laughs> so you've got a $50 shortfall on their own document. I right. don't even have to calculate it. And years ago, when I f first started at Swedish Cove, I had to figure out Medicaid for the different states because yeah. we had these cost reports coming in that we had to do. And so I, I was just finding it bizarre, all the formulas, the mechanisms, the step-downs, the allocations, the games you had to play to try to get another dollar or two you know, of reimbursement. But many times, those reimbursement dollars did not cover our costs. So the third major source is private pay. So this is someone who has retirement funds, and they said, I'd like to move into assisted living, or perhaps I need a skilled nursing facility. Yeah. I will write the check yep. for some period of time. Yeah. But, but doesn't the cost just get shifted to those payers? Yes, that's exactly what happens, is if your daily rate has to be, if you got a $50 shortfall with Medicaid, right. 
that means you can't charge $250 or $250 plus a reasonable margin. Right. You might need to charge $300 or $350. So not only are you paying for all of your costs as that cash payer, you're, sub you're, you're subsidizing the guy next door. You're indirectly, actually directly subsidizing the Medicaid person. Right. I did that my first two or three, I was, you know, I wasn't a healthcare guy, I was from the IRS. And so, <laughs> but I, I sat there and I was doing the budget for Swedish Covenant Hospital and I, I, I segmented out all the different payer types. Right. You know, managed care, we had managed care in those days still. It was an early preliminary run at that. Yeah. But I, I sat down and said, well, here's, I took the total operating cost of the hospital, the budget divided by what we call patient days mm -hmm. and came up with the average cost per day. Then I just sat and looked at that cost versus what, who was paying what. Mm -hmm. And of course, you got people coming into the emergency room who don't have anything mm -hmm. that you're going to write off. Right. You, you got so, so much amount of care, you're just never going to get paid for. Right. If you're a hospital, that's going to happen. But that same way. That, that was one of, I mean, just to take an aside, that was uh, one of the consequences of MTALA that they never realized was that they were uh, stealing labor and never reimbursing for it. It yeah. wasn't that Mtala was tied to some modest non-zero reimbursement. They could have tied it to CMS rates, right? Yeah. They, we know yeah. what the CPT codes are, we know what the diagnoses are, we right. know what you right. did, <laughs> right? We're gonna make you whole. Yeah. Maybe you don't make money on these emergency cases that we've legally obligated you to do, right. but at least we'll make it so it's a net zero for you. But that never happened. No. Pe people don't understand that, that when someone comes into the emergency room, under the Emergency Medicine and Labor Treatment Act, MTALA, which was passed, I believe, in 84, something like that, mm -hmm. in the 80s, yeah. uh, the hospital has zero guaranteed payment. They must incur whatever costs are required. So if you have a bad motorcycle accident and That's you're gonna right. take up a neuro ICU slot and run up a million dollar bill, yeah. the yeah. hospital has to eat that. Yep. And they have no recourse in terms of now they could I think they can come after you, but legally though you know those folks are like, look, we're indigent, we're never going to pay this. We're you know declare yeah. bankruptcy and it's gone. Um, what the government could have done but didn't do was tie it to some guaranteed reimbursement that would at least make you whole. At least there's a floor. There's at least a floor. Some yeah. of your costs are are contained and yeah. and and yeah. Um, and it's amazing to me that the so-called Republicans let that pass because that literally is theft of labor. We're forcing, we're, we're forcing you to do something. We're, we're forcing you to give bread to someone that's hungry, and we're not gonna pay you for your bread. Yeah. Well, they may as well come in and steal it. Yeah, and so we yeah. can argue as a society that this is a social good, that we should pay for people who are indigent or people who have no insurance, and that's a separate debate, but to say that we should usurp your labor to, to do this uh, completely shifts the cost. And so if you're a hospital in a downtown core like Hennepin County, or what used to be Ramsey County now regions, um, you have an incredible burden of that care. Yeah. And yeah. if you have an increasing number of folks who have no retirement income, and you're a skilled nursing facility, to some degree you must accept folks, but now you're going to be taking a loss in each one. And what if those are all of your beds? What if that's your entire book of business? How are you supposed to square your finances? You can't make it. And that that's what's been happening is that you know, we, you know, I did a study, I, I worked with someone who did a study of the Northern Illinois uh, nonprofits, the northern part of the state, just studied it off the cost reports. The margins were like minuscule. <laughs> and if I, if I stripped out investment income, and in those days you could get some investment income and contributions, 
charitable contributions. Yeah, they were they were actually going south. Well, what's happened over the last few years, those two items, investment income, went away for practical purposes, and contribution base has gone down. Mm -hmm. And so these facilities have really become at risk. Well, then what you happen with some of the not-for-profits is you have, and by the way, I'm not an anti-for-profit guy, but mm -hmm. there are some for-profits out there that I really don't like. Mm -hmm. And they uh, would cherry-pick these, mm -hmm. buy them up, run them like puppy mills. Yep. Uh, minimal care. Yep. The lowest standards you can get regulatory-wise, build up the margin, after three, four, five years, sell it. You know, and you're looking at it going, man, this is crazy that we have a system that would allow something like that to happen. Or not just allow, but de-incentivize someone to buy and hold because it was a good, decent business, right? right? right. I mean, whenever right. you create a scenario where p private equity can come in s and sweep it up, buff the books, and leave it in tatters, but sell out to the next guy holding the potato, hot potato, that means that the underlying business is somewhat sick. Yeah. and that there aren't the correct incentives to say, I'm going to build a 30-year career here, or I'm going to buy a few of these, and they continue to make sense for me financially to get return on my investment. Right. Um, and I think that that's what we see in highly regulated industries oftentimes is that it is this predatory right. environment because the onesie-twosie, smaller businesses just can't afford to make it because the regulatory environment is so big versus a large, huge organization has the ability to spread that co cost right. out. So we've, we've reached a point now where we're, we're, if there ever was a time where we're in crisis mode, we are now. Uh, about 70% of the skilled nursing facilities in the state of Minnesota are in financial distress right now, 70%. We've got a good chunk of our assisted living facilities that are, could be closing or have closed. I've worked with one who closed. Mm -hmm. uh, just They couldn't hire staff anymore. And when you look at the margins that they were starting to generate or not generate, you have owner operators or you have nonprofits that say, we just can't afford to be in this business. You have to hit on all cylinders to make it work. And not everybody can do that. And so right now in Minnesota, we are literally have devalued elders to the point where we will have facilities closing and I've, I've told people, I've been very clear, I say, all I can tell you is when mom and dad, you can't find placement for mom and dad, call the legislator mm -hmm. <laughs> and say, listen, these, it's no longer available to us. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't know how to fix it. I, you know, unless there's focus and if there's acceptance of the fact of the root cause, that we have a root cause where we have just absolutely ignored this for years. We've layered it up with regulation and burdensome tasks. Mm -hmm. We've moved away from the fact that elders are people. Even the euthanasia movement has done that. Yeah, that's... You know, and yeah. you, you look at physician-assisted suicide and some of these things that says, once a person gets to a certain point, they no longer have any worth. Well, this was Rahm Emanuel, right? I mean... Well, this was Emanuel, and I mean, Emanuel... I mean, so, so he, I mean, for he, background for folks who are listening who don't know who that name is. Well, uh, he really angers me. Tell us about him. Well, Zeke, Zeke Emanuel. Right. You know, Rom was the mayor of Chicago. He mm -hmm. was also President Obama's, I think, chief of staff, if mm -hmm. I remember right. right. But Zeke Emanuel. That's Manuel, right. His brother. His brother Zeke is a doctor. 
a, a doctor in quotes. Uh, I'm going yeah, yeah, I'll yeah. use the term loosely. Yeah. But he basically was one of the pioneers of the Affordable Care Act with Obama. And he was the same guy who said, basically, shoot me when I'm 75. I don't need to yeah. live a day past 75. Actually, if I recall right, I think he wanted, initially the number was a little lower than that. <laughs> <laughs> but he, as he aged, the number went yeah, up. Yeah, well, I'm a, we should call him when he's 74 <laughs> and ask him how he feels about it's that. It's just like I, one of the... Because it was Logan's Run. I mean, what, he was basically... It was. You know, famous 80s sci-fi movie, Logan's Run, 70s or 80s, where they would just literally kill the old people. Yeah. And that's what it is. You reach a certain age, uh, you got killed off. We can't afford it anymore. And and also the, the types of services that they'll have. And it's a legitimate question in terms of how do we pay for this. But the question that isn't legitimate to me is our... Do we dishonor elders? Humans have intrinsic value. Yeah, I mean, it's like my mother-in-law, 87, 88, somewhere in there. Uh, she calls the family and says, uh, you know, the doctor said I can have another stent put in, I can live another six months, or I can have a quadruple heart bypass, and then I got five, six years. Yeah. She yeah. says, I think I'd just have the six months. And of course, the family outvoted her yeah. and said no. And, you know, now we're six years out, yeah. and she's doing great. Yeah. I mean, she's independent. I mean, she's in her 90s. But I will tell you that there are perverse, quote-unquote, doctors uh, who have infected our academia, our multi-specialty groups, um, who believe that they're doing some kind of good ushering people into the grave yeah. and saying we should no longer spend money on you yeah um and that is one grotesque yeah but two it's increasingly prevalent and the medical students that go to school now and i wouldn't be surprised if it's also infected nursing and you know pas are taught that there's somehow a social good there is no social good there is only the patient in front of you and you have a legal obligation to do everything you can based on those patients wishes now that doesn't mean you don't have discussions yeah. i joke i do skin cancer surgery i say look if you're 105 years old, and I've had some 105-year-old patients, I don't care about this thing. You don't care about this thing. I'm going to tell you what it's going to do. It's going to slowly grow in size. It's not going to yeah. shorten your life. It's not going to hurt. It's not going to smell. And look, you know, you're not going to be 120. You're probably not even going to be 110. So if you really want me to do this procedure, I think it's relatively low risk, but I'm not sure you gain much from it. But it's an open conversation. I, I will do it if that's the way you want to go. Yeah. But most people are like, well, if it's not going to hurt and it's not going to shorten my life and it's not going to do anything like that, like, let's just monitor it. That's a yeah. great answer. That's what yeah. I would tell my mom to do. Right. But my job as a physician is to present you with what happens if we do, what happens if we don't do, what are the benefits and alternatives to that, right. help you make a decision, um, you know, and, and not force you into one thing one way or the other. Yeah. That we must do something or we must never do anything. Yeah. And so, um, you know, if you're not buying green bananas, this isn't going to be a problem. <laughs> But it, I think from a policy standpoint, it really has become that there is this quote-unquote mythical good out there of saving quote-unquote the system dollars um, that, that, that what? That, that can buy another aircraft carrier? I mean, at best, not even that, right? Not, th th there is no other good. There's the patient in front of you. You should do what you can based on that patient's care Well, we've, care we've moved into a utilitarian e ethic yes. where the end justifies the means. And if, you, if your end is social good as defined by you... <laughs> <laughs> then then what do you get? Well, Mao was very sure that what he was doing was a social good. Yeah. So was Stalin. So um, I think we're, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not gloom and doom about the future, but I am very concerned. And uh, unless things change, 
we are heading for such a train wreck. When you look at the statistics on the aging population, the, the, our lack of focus on preventive, mm -hmm. so we've got people over 65, vast majority of them have two or more comorbidities right, right now. Yeah, we're not taking a, a aggressive steps to deal with cancer, to deal with diabetes. You know, we're medicating it, we're over-treating it. Oh, well, there's off, no off, oftentimes. There's no root cause analysis. No, there's so, no, no, there's no step back and says this is what we could be doing. So children now have a degree of pre-obesity or frank obesity that is difficult for folks to understand, and we have this bizarre fat acceptance movement where somehow it is better for you to not tell that child that they are obese yeah. than it is to, we don't, you know, you don't accept bad behaviors. I don't yeah, accept yeah. when someone smokes, I, mean, I accept them, but right. I'm gonna tell them it's bad for you. Right. It's also bad for you if you're obese. And you're right. going to die sooner and die in terrible, terrible ways. You know, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease leaving, leading to cirrhosis will be the, one of the number one causes of death in people that are under 50 in the next 15 yeah. years. Yeah, I can And see no that. one's ringing the, the alarm bells about that. And that is a terrible, terrible way to die. Obviously, it's bad to lose a 50-year-old, period. But that's not the way you want to go out. Yeah. Um, but yet we're accepting that these kids are morbidly obese at five, six, seven, eight. And the intervention is so simple. Net calorie intake, drive down carbs, eliminate sugar, and it'll fix itself. Yeah. Pharma doesn't make any money if we do that. The system doesn't make any money because we're like, I could replace some joints in that kid. Uh, that kid needs a quadruple bypass in his 30s. Systems make more money. Yeah. What a grotesque way to look at this entire thing. That's a person who we can help with interventions that cost zero dollars. Yeah, and I think the regenerative side of things in terms of preventive mm -hmm. up front, I, you know, I'm, I've been connected with a group of docs focused on that. Yeah. And the results are outstanding. But the, it's almost all has to be cash basis, you know, because there aren't dollars, you know, federal dollars or state dollars usually invested in it. Yep. But to me, the results are amazing. You know, a couple of years ago, right uh, May when we were shut down and we couldn't go anywhere. For me, that was horrific. I, I'm an asthmatic and I need the exercise of the YMCA. <laughs> so my asthma was starting to trigger. And then I, I like to, I gotta move around or my joints get crazy. Yeah. Well, I couldn't get to the Y to get in the pool. So all of a sudden I found myself like not as mobile as I wanted. That's either. right. And then I opened, I lifted a box wrong, and all of a sudden my knee goes, oop. Yep, tore meniscus. So I didn't tear anything, but I had a, I called, I went to, to get a cortisone shot, and then it didn't help me. So the next thing I do, I, I call the doc on that, and he says, well, we got to do a knee replacement. Didn't even suggest therapy. Right, right. And I'm going like, you got to be kidding me. That's right. And so, by the way, I'm not going to mention that company's name, but I, I won't go there. <laughs> That's right. And it was, it was a big health system? A big, yeah, it was yeah, a big health, big health system, system. And here in the cities. There's you very know. little health in the big health system. But, you know, you're looking at it, and I'm going, and I know the, how numbers work, and I go like yeah. a knee replacement followed by therapy is probably right. more, a little more productive margin-wise than just... Oh, it's hugely productive margin-wise. Yeah. But so, the right answer is we need to get you lifting heavy weights, increase your protein intake, and then probably talk about supplemental hormones plus minus if we're not getting the result we want with the other things. So what I did was, uh, you know, I went to another group and got therapy. Yeah. And the therapy started to help. And then the YMCA opened. Well, I went to the pool every day. 
the first day it was painful. By the tenth day in the pool, I was walking fine. Yeah. I mean, everything was back. Yeah. But I was thinking about that, and I was saying, you know, the normal path would have been a knee replacement, and then therapy yeah. afterwards. And that's what we do. You know, we formed our own physical th therapy company, uh, another group of alliance. It's amazing when communities work together what you can accomplish. But we, we formed our own therapy company. We're, I'm not involved with it now for, for quite a few years, but I was involved in the formation of it. I think they're in multiple states now. Mm -hmm. But the philosophy is really focused on the regenerative preventive side of yes. things. Yes. rather than let's just get somebody after surgery. Mm -hmm. But let's start finding ways to accelerate, enhance life on the front end with a wellness model. Mm -hmm. And as we moved into that, we found people living in our communities had much better lives. And then they can start to get rid of some of those drugs. Well, they, they may could. not need anymore. I mean, I think, about, I think about the way we treat osteoporosis. We used to bisphosphonates, now with prolia, very expensive. These are not drugs without risk. They'd have some nasty side effects. Yeah. Uh, you want to increase bone mineral density, you weight train. You make people lift heavy weights, and their bones will respond. Yeah. The fastest way to lose bone mineral density is to make someone uh, weightless, wow. right, in a yeah. hospital bed. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. they say it's, 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 you know, it's three days of rehab for every one day you spend in a hospital bed. Um, you sent people to space, I don't know, well, Skylab, right? A different era. Yeah, Kids yeah. now may not understand. <laughs> we did that. We sent people to space for a long time. Yeah. They could not stand. These were people, like astronauts are peak physical specimens, and they would work out four to six hours a day, and they literally could not bear their own weight when they touched back down after a year in space. Wow. Wow. Um, you have to lift heavy weights, and the bones respond to stress by getting thicker, getting more robust, getting heavier. We all know that you know, one of the leading causes of mortality in elderly population is break a major bone. Yeah. And it's almost a death sentence, a six month, 50% mortality if you break a hip. Yeah. So the way to prevent that is to have an environment where you're less likely to break a hip, yeah. but two, have large, thick bones. And to have that ability to catch yourself if you start to fall. Grip strength is probably one of the, I shake every patient's hand, you know? And the number one way you can tell someone's general state of health, fastest way to do it, is how hard they give, how yeah. hard they grab your hand. That's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. And that's well conserved in studies. Yeah. So if you want one physical exam thing to do, tell someone to squeeze your hand as hard as they can, and yeah. that's like, okay, we're in trouble. We need to do some rehab. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, it's not big pharma making hundreds of dollars a day off your prescription. It's a weight trainer and a dietitian and a physician who's actually focused on your wellness. Yeah. And uh, and and we've really lost the ability to do that. And so I, I would love to see some of those programs integrated into a elder care setting because they could have a dramatic increase on the quality of life. Yeah. We talk about lifespan. We're sometimes obsessed with lifespan, but health span, right? How long, to what age can you squat down, pick up your 45-year-old grandchild and not have back pain or risk of throwing something out? That's a better measure of, I believe, happiness right. and function. Right. It's more likely to keep you at your house, more likely to keep you healthy and moving around. Right. But we don't assess that. No, and we don't focus on it. And I, and I think the models that are out there have just been accepted rather than challenged. You, you take like the, the whole rise of dementia, just to switch it to another parallel sure. topic, dementia memory care. Well, from a developer perspective, and I don't want to sound like a cynic here. I, I'm tr out looking for solutions, just so you know. I don't, it's easy to throw stones. And sure. I'm not, I don't sure. want to throw stones. But you have to look at what's out there. And in dementia and memory loss, you see these cookie-cutter development efforts. Let's build a 40-unit dementia or memory loss building. Yeah. 
Well, from a development side, there's quite a bit of money to be made in development work. I've done all kinds of development projects. I know that. But the fact of the matter is, is that the best solution, you know, for somebody? We tend to get these folks in. Again, they're segregated with folks that all have dementia or some form of memory loss. Mm -hmm. So every day they get up and see the same kind of people. Mm -hmm. They're not, probably not seeing kids very often and probably not seeing others. Many of them are what I call senior adult orphans, which means they don't have any family. Hmm. And so who's going to come and visit? And so you've got this situation where we literally are set them on a path to go downhill. And then if they start having odd behaviors, what do we do? We medicate. B-52. And so yeah. literally we over-medicate, and I, I have a colleague that I know who studied this, uh, one of the premier people in the world on this who's written about it, his concern that we are just so badly over-medicated yep. that we can't even, we don't even know how they are. Yeah, yeah, that's be right. Because we literally have medicated them to the point where we don't have any idea where their health really stands. And if they demonstrate any odd behavior then we say odd behavior must be medicated mm -hmm. rather than finding out what's the root cause of the odd behavior. Which is oftentimes medication. <laughs> you know, medications. and you look at it, you know, I got a, had the privilege years ago, uh, you know, when President Reagan uh, came down with dementia and you know, Nancy Reagan formed uh, out of the Reagan Foundation an initiative relating to dementia care. And our community in Santa Barbara at that time was one of the pilot sites. Yeah. So, we were, we were literally pioneering a program called Best Friends, which just brought in somebody from the community to, to pair up with somebody with dementia. Uh, it was a friendship thing. Cool. The thing just took off. I mean, when the person who died in the community uh, that had the dementia died, the best friend was like, it was, it was, it was a huge, dramatic event, traumatic. Yeah. They'd be, they become best friends. But we began more and more to focus on the five senses, which hardly anybody focuses on, and I don't get that. Yeah. But I created one community, I was involved with one community, where we took a whole area and we, we loaded with the five senses. So we had visuals of things that they would have seen growing up. Mm. You know, we recreated a chapel area, you know, where they could go and sort of see that visual and a, an old typewriter, an old telephone. You got record players and you can listen to the music that you wanted to with baked bread, you know, going on and the smells of music galore. I mean, and we found that just filled up like you couldn't believe with people. But it created an environment. They might have had dementia, but all of a sudden they were thinking, you start, you put fishing gear out. Yeah. And all of a sudden fishing stories come out and they start telling fishing stories. Well, you know, it might not be what's going on in the news today, but I, frankly, I'd rather hear the fishing story, you know, mm -hmm. from that particular elder. So it just livens things up. But when you go to these cookie-cutter stereotype things and you over-treat, right. you just destroy life, but you can enhance life in so many dramatic ways. Uh, I'll give you one other example. Uh, dental, years ago, my man made a mistake when the medical and dent, when they separated and mm -hmm. went separate paths, I thought that I thought dental should have been uh, viewed as an integral part of medicine. I you agree. Know. Right, because it, it profoundly affects. And you know, I've learned I've learned through the years that the bacteria in the mouth yes. affects the brain waves 
Well, the no. DNA pathways to the brain and also impacts cardio. Massive health. impact on cardio. If you have chronic inflammation in your gums from poor dentition, yeah. bacteria biofilm excess, uh, it increases the risk of stroke, it increases the risk of heart attack. And so literally, you know, in our community, Medicaid, here's, here's a lie that's out there. Medicaid pays for it. Right. Medicaid covers it. So in our communities, there's no dental provision. So in Medicaid, but literally you're expecting CNAs who are the, in my mind, the heroes, like you can't believe. Those CNAs or personal care attendants, they're the most amazing people in the world, but you're expecting them to brush mouths of people who have all kinds of stuff going on up here. Right. And they have no business being in that mouth, even from a health perspective. Right. And yet that mouth will go on attended. Mm-hmm. It will incre- increase the memory loss issues, sure. the dementia issues, and the cardio issues. Yep. And yet you can't, somebody trying to bring, de- I worked with a group that tried to bring dental services into there, into communities, and they finally, at COVID, they finally went out of business. They couldn't mm-hmm. get in anymore. And you're going like, what's wrong with this picture? You know, we're killing our elders in a lot of different ways. It might not be through, you know, active euthanasia, but it might be through dental care where an elder says, well, I don't have any value anymore, so don't spend any money on cleaning my mouth. But then they go to eat and they can can only eat certain foods. And they've lost the joy of eating. And so what do you expect? And so I feel like there's so much upside. And the fact of the matter is I've been in systems and worked with people. I work with groups right now. I'm working with someone who just brought chickens into their community. Chickens. Like live chickens. They chickens. Have chickens out there. Yeah. So, I mean, that place has just taken off because it's got chickens. Hmm. I mean, some animal life. It's managed well. The regulators aren't, aren't getting worked up about it. Frankly, I, I tell people, focus on the resident, do what's right by the resident, and you will take care of the regulatory boxes. Well, that's how it should work. On, on most of it. And <laughs> right. when you don't, then we got then we got it problem. We got to put up a little bit of a stir on that. So I think we've made a pretty good case that the system we have right now is expensive, increasing at an exponentially more expensive rate yeah. compared to its historical norms. Yeah, that's fair. It is a uniquely American problem in the, the way that we've built this system. Yeah. Problem or benefit, whatever it is, it's uniquely American. Um, there is a massive burden of regulation, with which I think in your mind and my mind as well, drives a lot of the cost increase yeah. uh, with dubious to no benefit, net benefit to folks. And that this cost burden will increase, right, with an aging population. Um, so in your mind is, is if you could wave a magic wand and, and reset some of this tomorrow, what are the policy prescriptions that you would recommend to, to folks in the legislature? What are things we can do at the state level? I think, I think, first of all, there has to be a huge shift in mindset. If you don't get the shift in mindset, you can't do any of the policy work. What would the shift in mindset be? That we, Just that we one, have a problem? Not, I think the major, the, where I've seen success is the communities and the leaders that honor and respect the elder. Just that little phrase, what do I have to do that's honoring and respectful to elders and honor and respectful to employees? So a double heart. Okay. And to me, when we've put that in place as not a, as a, a code of conduct, our ethics, et cetera, 
What's honoring to that elder? Then a lot of things begin to flow. That, But if you put it in a place that says, I got to do this and this is my job each day, mm-hmm. those things will never flow. So there has to be this mind shift. If we don't get the mind shift, if we still continue to have the command and control mindset, the mindset that says we know what's best, or the mindset that says these people are widgets, a fractured hip in room 101, mm-hmm. instead of Mrs. Jones, who happens to have a fractured hip, who's in room 101, we can't get anything done. I mean, that, in my mind, that sounds really like you know, high-level, lofty stuff, but it's basic. And when I've seen it, when I've implemented it in communities, and when we push that thinking, life changes. The whole place comes alive. But when you have the mindset that says, I've got a, I'm doing a job and I'm checking the boxes, it, it won't work. So you got to start there. Then you start saying, what do we have to do that's respectful for that elder? And you start looking at it and you start saying, I, I will tell you, I'll give you an example of something that really worked for us. Years ago, there were no computers in long-term care. <laughs> it just wasn't. It was all manual. They, it, was, it was the glory days of all of medical care. Yeah, but no computers. Early, but my boss one day and I was, you know, we formed this separate office for all of our retirement communities, and there were there was no systems, no processes, nothing. We just had we were trying to bring structure to these communities all around the country. We were all doing their own thing. And most of them going out broke. You make not-for-profits who thought you shouldn't make a profit, and they were very good at not making a profit. So they lost money. And so we were in a real world of hurt, but we had no no systems, no computers. And I remember my boss at that time, I was mandated with putting together a task force that would put those systems, determine, select the software, the computers, put the systems in place. Not necessarily an easy task when there was nothing really out there. I mean, mm-hmm. there were there were different things, but nothing was really dominating. And uh, I remember he went to the board, and he, he said, here's what I expect from this group. And he drew a big circle, and around the circle he started drawing food service and nursing services and housekeeping and maintenance and you name all the different areas, therapies, and you name, he drove all these things and he said, and then in the middle, he wrote big capital letters, resident. And all of these are to serve the resident. And he says, I want an integrated system that's focused on serving the resident. That's it, that's all I want. Well, it took me five years, but we got a system that did that. It was an integrated system, it took went spread number one software system in the country and in long-term care and still is in varying forms but i had the privilege of being one of the designers of that system and it started off with who's the resident and what's the resident's interests you know boy that's a crazy thought (laughs) out of those interests you find ways to serve people And all of a sudden, you know, your food service is based on, well, I got a group of folks here that are former Swedes and long-term Swedes. They love smorgasbords. We better do smorgasbords. But things like that just tune up resident life. We don't call things activities. I hate the term activities. Now, I love activity directors. Don't get me wrong. But I don't like the term activities. I call it life enrichment. 
I don't like activity calendars. That's compliance. We, I, we got to do them. I get it. But I'd much rather have spontaneous life enrichment events that occur during the day when something could happen that's not on the program. It's like going to church. Maybe something could happen today that's not in the bulletin. Hmm. You know, wouldn't that be something? You know, but that's the kind of life I'm saying if you focus on the resident. And that software system got to a point and it eventually got sort of convoluted and different owners and stuff. And I still have a desire to come back with another system that takes sort of like the that part, original system on steroids. But I've seen systems and processes can either be used to entrap people or empower people. So the more you have processes that are focused on empowering people, not power and control, but empowering the people that you're serving, the more you're going to have life. We can get that mindset across. And then if we can stop this goofy, goofy legislation, this global stuff. Mm -hmm. I haven't mentioned any particular people in Congress, but I will right now, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> when, when I think of him saying we have to have a minimum wage, it was started out at $15. Now there's some people that are talking 25 yep, or 30. 30. Yeah. You know, and I'm going like, well, Senator Sanders, you know what you just did to us? You didn't have any idea what you just did to us? We pay our personal care attendants in our assisted living group homes, the small group homes. We can only pay $13, $14 an hour. Now, the owners aren't lying in their pockets. Mm -hmm. They're getting a decent income, but they're not getting anything that's like a Fortune 500 or a, any CEO-type yeah. incomes. They're not in it for that. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that these personal care attendants all of a sudden are seeing McDonald's is paying $15 an hour. Right. They're seeing Walmart ever, you know, offering an employer an incentive to hire, a $2,000 bonus to hire. So we have 23, 24,000 open positions in long-term care in the state of Illinois, in Minnesota. 24,000. 24,000 right now. Open right now. Between 21,000 24. So what 20. happens when you have a regulatory rule that says you must have XYZ staffing per resident and you have no ability to hire then you have to either have to you either have to close. I mean, we Which literally reduces the total number of beds, and we know we have a shortage. That's what happened in the, the one assisted living group. You know, the state has got all these rules on how you close too. And I basically, I basically told the owners, I said, you know, we can't operate. We're putting people at risk. We've got to close. If the state's got a problem with that, we'll deal with it. But we'll notify them. We'll tell them what we have to do. But we're going to close. We don't have any choice. Yeah. So this small assisted living group home is now no longer in that small rural community here in Minnesota. It's gone because we could not get staff to, to staff that. You know, how many people want to work double shifts, come in and work? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, somebody I knew who had just had a baby and she tries to bring the baby in mm. to cover a shift, but she's got to bring her little one because child care is through the roof. Right, right. So we've set up systems and processes that I call structural evil. You know, I think they're built in that are just destructive to people. And we've got to strip that stuff out. Well, they're fundamentally dehumanizing. And I think what the guys like Bernie Sanders, who's never worked in a job, he was so lazy he got kicked out of a progressive right commune. That's how lazy Bernie Sanders is. They don't understand that capital will go elsewhere, that the ability to make a living profit margin 
ensures that you have inflow of capital into XYZ industry. Yeah. And if you if you make it so that it is Im literally impossible to pay your bills in that industry, then those folks who have that capital will simply take it elsewhere. They'll open a McDonald's, uh, right. they'll open a, a convenience store. Right. Society's not better off as a result of that because now we have access to fewer and fewer, you know, group homes or long-term care facilities to put put folks in. Right. And right. that burden always, like all of the results of the kind of policies that the Bernie Sanders of the world want to promulgate is that the working class and middle class pay the highest burden always. This is what progressives don't realize. The people paying the cost for their pie-in-the-sky views are not the wealthy. It's always the working class and the poor. And by that I mean if you have $10 million in your retirement account, you will always be able to afford people to come to your house and deliver whatever level of services you right, need, right, right? right? Always. Right. The people who say, well, we have a very modest, we worked for this, you know, we worked for a small business uh, our whole life or ran a bakery and maybe we have a couple hundred thousand dollars saved up and now we're 80 and we, we really need a place to live for a reasonable. Sorry, buddy. There's not going to be a place for you to go because there are not beds and there are not people who are, who are going to be able to produce something at a price where you're willing to accept it. And I think that's, uh, we, we just did a uh, thing actually yesterday in class on this intro to healthcare, I, I have them pretend to be somebody else. So they can make up whoever they want to be, whatever age, whatever income level, family size, whatever. Then I give them site, we give them sites to find health insurance. Now most of them tend to err, not err, but choose the side of lower incomes and or, or like a traditional family mm -hmm. and then they get on the site. Then we give them a, uh, a disease like diabetes and say okay now find coverage for that within your plan yeah. and they go to work on it but one of them chose to be the the wife of a guy who died who was very wealthy she said I'd like to be his wife <laughs> <laughs> so, and, uh, you know I just let it go I let it play out yeah. and, and she looked it up and she said well now I'm I'm getting this much income a year it's like a million dollars or more a year and she says you know I don't really need any of this she said, I guess maybe I should just buy some life insurance for the kids. You know, but I, your mindset just changes entirely. Mm -hmm. And the problem that I have with it is when you have, you know, Lincoln had lived in a log cabin. I mean, his wife didn't even have a pension. Grant's wife didn't even have a pension, you know, when, when he died. I mean, it, we've gotten to this point now where we've got people who are so incredibly wealthy who are our leaders. That I don't know how they can have a clue. Well, they don't have, a clue. and they they can't. They can't, and so they're just totally out of touch. And so, how do we get that back? But to me, it comes back to that focus on hey, we we got a tremendous resource in elders to value. I just tell you one one quick story about that. My son is uh, a is a uh, musician. He used to bring him down to our campus. And he'd bring friends with, and starting in eighth, seventh, eighth grade, they give concerts all the way through high school. Uh, but it wasn't the concert. And then he went, to, he went to Wheaton, and they started a program there where they had reached out to these senior living communities with concerts. Mm -hmm. and, and during his days at Wheaton, he gave over 90 some concerts, you know, in senior living communities in that area. And but I remember when he was in high school, uh, the concert was over, but they. 
there was always a reception afterwards, and that's what the kids loved, was not the concert. They liked doing the music, but they liked meeting the people. So all of a sudden, out in the lobby, I'm hearing my son singing Happy Birthday to Harry. Well, Harry's birthday was that day, he had, and my son heard it, and he said, let's sing Happy Birthday, and it's just this beautiful. Everybody's singing Happy Birthday to Harry. Well, Harry and our son became close friends the second that happened. As, as Nathaniel got to know Harry, he found out that Harry was General Eisenhower's, uh, on General Eisenhower's staff in the North African campaign. Wow. So, uh, you know, he got to learn all about Eisenhower. So as I was, I was reading a book on a biography of Eisenhower, I finally just said, I'll just ask Harry <laughs> <laughs> or my son. But, you know, he told a story about one day when uh, Patton came to visit Eisenhower, Harry, by mistake, had closed the door in Patton's face. And nobody does that. <laughs> but Harry said, but because he reported Eisenhower, he got away with it, you know. But you hear life, you know. And for Harry, Harry was a senior adult orphan. Harry had no family. His wife had died. There was no family. There might be some short-tailed relatives out east, but they had no interest in Harry. Mm -hmm. The community became his family. But he was an adopted grand grandfather for my son. And how can you measure that? You know, and that's what I want to see happen. It's, it is happening. I hear stories all the time, and that's why people do this business, is that human touch and that ability to connect with people. But we've got to empower that. We can't disable that. We can't minimize it. We can't devalue it. We've got to value that. And for Harry, he became like part of our family, you know, and it was just an amazing kind of time. But those stories happen all the time if we allow it and if we promote it. And so I, I've worked with, pro I'm working with a project right now. It's a national project to do that. <laughs> it's going to Congress and trying to get some support in Congress. I don't know how far we'll get. But, you know, I don't even know where we're at right now on it. But the fact of the matter is there's always initiatives that are trying to get us back to that. So systems and processes that are focused on honoring elders and respecting them, I've seen it work. And you, there's even other things that happen. We set up a benevolent fund. I remember we, we had a, uh, a state planning department of the Covenant Church. And years ago, uh, we formed a for-profit trust company. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, first one in the state of Illinois. But we had the not-for-profit, for-profit. But it was incredible. People could give to the trust. We would manage their assets, set up a trust. As long as there was a 25% remainder to covenant causes, uh, we didn't charge them anything. And we managed the trust, set up the documents. Well, in our division, we had benevolent care. So people could give to a benevolent care fund. Well, that thing grew to millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. But there was nothing more wonderful than to have somebody come in, a retired pastor or missionary who didn't have any resources, not because of what they, <laughs> on their own doing, it's what they chose to live their life, how they chose to live their life. And they come into our community and you're able to sit down with them and give them benevolence. I remember one lady, she looked at me and she sought me out one time, I was at a community and she says, can I talk to you? I said, yes. She says, I'm on benevolence. I feel so awful. I should be paying my fair share. And I said, ma'am, I got to tell you, it's an honor for us 
to have you here. And the way you live, the way you live out your life, the way you've lived your life, it's a way for us to say thanks. So don't you ever say this to me again. <laughs> and don't you think this way anymore. This is, a, this is on us. This is a value for us. So there are times when benevolence <laughs> and charity comes into play where you can give back to people who have really deserve it. Mm -hmm or have had circumstances in life, I don't believe everyone can get off the floor, get off the mat. Right. I, I don't believe this thing, everybody can just lift themselves up by the bootstraps. There's disparities that just trap and enslave people that you'll never get out of. And we've got to know that and deal with it and have ways to handle it rather than, here's another handout. Right, right. Here's the handout a, does nothing. It doesn't, it just, does it just circulates. Perpetuates the yeah. So those That's are a few right. of my thoughts and ramblings today. I love it. <laughs> if folks want to follow what you're doing, so you mentioned your uh, faculty, adjunct faculty at, at Bethel, so you teach yeah. a couple classes. Yeah. Um, you have a website? Yeah, lessonslearnedsol.com. Okay, excellent. And, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come by. I think I learned a ton from this conversation about the challenges that we face with having adequate elder care beds, making sure that folks are the center of that care experience. And, um, you know, hopefully people that are listening are more enlightened and hopefully they can get their policymakers to understand that, you know, if they get their fingers out of the pie, this might all work a little bit better. <laughs> it might be easier for, for good, the good actors that are out there to start to put the patient or the, the, the resident closer to the center. Yeah, and, um, and you need to know that there, is, there are some bad actors out there, and the fact of the matter is when I hear about those stories, they need to be out of business. Right. And we need to have tough rules and laws, but we can't penalize the rest of the sector. Who are trying to do the right thing. Who and are and trying that's to the case. That's yeah. the way it is across the board. There are bad doctors out there for sure, yeah. but I pay the burden of their bad actions and, yeah. and no amount of regulation. Look, murder's been illegal ever since humans have had civilizations, yeah. and yet we have murders every year. No amount of laws, no amount of penalties for committing murder will prevent murder from happening. Right, right. And so, you know, the root cause analysis can drive it down, but it will never be zero. And I think that when legislators and decision makers start to view the world in that lens, we, they need to get out of the way. They need to empower the good people to do better. Yeah. And they need to penalize when truly nefarious actors are doing bad things. Yeah. Um, and make an example of them. To, to deter people from, from going that route, then I think that you know we're gonna be in a better place. But to think that it's going to be driven down to zero by some magical law that you pass right. uh, is wishful thinking. I, just one other quick thought, I, yeah. I can still mention yeah. one more oh, thing. Yeah. I, I got involved with a, an affordable housing initiative in Portland, Oregon. One of the most exciting things I ever did. It, it was on Martin Luther King Drive. <laughs> It was a church there that had land that wanted to build an affordable assisted living. And uh, Portland had a pretty generous Medicaid program, et cetera. But I remember working on, it was one of the toughest projects I ever worked on. That building looked like a Marriott courtyard hmm. when it was done. And it transformed the whole neighborhood. The, the only people who were unhappy about us being there were the gangs. <laughs> and I remember when the building was being built, there was a bullet hole through a certain window where I was sitting. I'd come through a previous week or so, and I happened to be sitting right where, where that bullet hole had come through, which, you know, fired by the gang, a gang member. And somebody said, Rick, you need to move. 
And I said, no, I'm not moving. <laughs> I said, if I'm just so happy they're irritated. <laughs> you know, if God wants me gone, I'm gone. But the fact is, it transformed that whole neighborhood. And I remember one lady, she lived in the flop house down, downtown Portland, YMCA, where you just bless the heart of the Y. Mm -hmm. But they, all they could give was minimal meals and, the, and just a small room with a bed elderly lady that's where she lived well there came the day when we were able to put her in a taxi and come to our community <laughs> gave her a fifth floor <laughs> view and i remember i was sitting one day and i was out there and i i like to play the piano so i and i you, you have to find ways to pace yourself through the day because it's a lot of pressure and I decided to get away, and I, it was one of these that had all the different keys. You can play all the different mm -hmm. instruments on the piano. So I played Amazing Grace for about 45 minutes with all different kinds of instruments and arrangements. I didn't think anybody was in there. And I, there was this lady, and I think it was her. I'm not 100% certain it was her, but I think it was her. But when I got up, I saw this lady in the back of the room, and I was embarrassed. I had just played Amazing Grace for 45 minutes, <laughs> you know, and I could have played different songs, different instruments, yeah, but different different uh, songs I could have played, but I got hung up on that, and it was relaxing, but I walked back to her, and I said, ma'am, how long have you been here? And she said, I've been here the whole time. And I said, uh, I have to apologize. I said, I just played the same song. The entire time, if I had known you were here, I'd, I had done other stuff. And she said, she said, no, you don't need to apologize to me. She said, I've just had the concert of my life. I've never been to these kind of concerts. And by the way, I'm treated like a queen here. I live on the fifth floor. I've never lived like this in my entire life. And I get to live like a queen. And I just came from you know where and now I'm living like this that's what we got to do that's beautiful that's what that. we got to do I love that well I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to come by and chat with me and I look forward to chatting more in the future yeah same here I appreciate what you're doing thanks keep on keeping on will do thank you <laughs>